0: morning church if you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11 Uh, in a few moments pastor Toby will be preaching from Genesis 10 uh, chapters 10 and 11 but our scripture reading today uh, will be the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11 if you're uh, using the Black Pew Bible that you find either in front or near you uh, you'll find today's reading on page 8 once again, that's Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that you are sovereign Lord of all. We recognize that what has occurred throughout creation is because you have decreed it so. We know that you have a plan and a purpose for all that you do, even the language that we speak in. And we are so thankful that you speak to us through your holy word. Father, we now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to deliver today's message. Fill him with your Holy Spirit and speak through him with clarity and conviction. We ask that you open our hearts and minds to receive the words he has for us. And I pray that all of us take these words and live by them so that we may become more like Christ. And through all this, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: One of the main ways that the Bible speaks about God is as king, as ruler. So take, for example, the text we read at the beginning of the service from Psalm 47. A couple of those verses say, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. And as the Bible begins, God, the king, who is not just a king who inherits a kingdom, he is, he is a king who creates his kingdom. Now, in a very general way, the entire universe is God's kingdom. there is not a single square inch of it over which He does not reign. There is not a single millisecond of its time which He does not rule over. Okay? So, in a general way, God is king over everything. The Bible typically, though, speaks of God's kingship over His people. So, God Uh, In the very beginning, you know, God the, the, the Bible zooms in so that we see God creating not only the heavens but the earth, and then we zoom in on the earth. So, God creates the earth. He creates human beings in His image, male and female. He places them in the garden together to live according to His authoritative words. And what we see here is actually a picture of kingdom, One one way to think about, a helpful way that it's been described to think about the kingdom of God is to think about God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule, and that's exactly what you have in Genesis 1 and 2. You have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the place that He gave them, the garden, under his rule, his rule to work it and to keep it, his rule of living in marriage together, the joys of marriage together, the, the rule of staying away from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Genesis chapter 3 opens, a conspiracy is hatched by the devil himself. And Adam and Eve buy into it, believing that God is holding out on them That God's rules are prisons rather than safeguards. That life in God's kingdom is not all that it could be, say, if they were in charge. And so that conspiracy leads to a coup, and Adam and Eve usurp God's kingship, placing themselves on the throne, deciding for themselves to eat of the fruit that God had commanded them not to, taking it for themselves, eating it themselves. God will no longer be king. I will be king, and this will be my kingdom. That's one way to talk about what happens at the beginning of the Bible. One way to talk about this fall into sin is a shift of authority. That that there, the source of authority in the hearts and minds and lives of human beings was shifted away from God onto self. The shift was from theonomy, the idea that God governs, to autonomy, the fact that I will govern. I am a law to myself. And we see This repeat of conspiracy and coup in many, many places in the Bible, quite frankly, we could just replay it in many of our lives, the idea of thinking God's holding out on us, that uh, there's got to be something better than living according to God's words, and then the coup of overthrowing and saying, I will do it my way and not your way. That repeats itself over and over and over and over again. Quite frankly, some of you may be wrestling with thoughts that would be conspiratorial against the authority of God even this morning, because you're considering your work life, because you're considering your faithfulness in marriage, because you're considering any number of moral issues. And thoughts have begun to sneak in like, God's way cannot be the best way, truly. Surely there's leeway for me to do this, even though I know technically, we use that word as if it's an exception, you know, technically, God says we ought not to do this, but. The technically but argument runs rampant. And we see this repeat of the conspiracy and coup against God here in Genesis chapter 11. Now, the chapter we did not read, and I need to tell you just very straightforwardly that that Bill Grande came up and thanked me before the service, that I did not ask him to read all of these names in Genesis chapter 12. So uh, if you would like, you are welcome to go home and just read them for one another, uh, and you will see why he was so thankful. (laughs) But in this chapter that we didn't read, in chapter 10, is what's called the table of nations. So that uh, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it records their lines, their descendants, uh, mankind expanding not only in number but also in geography. As you go through there, you don't just see so-and-so, fathered so-and-so, fathered so-and-so. Sometimes you have whole people groups. Sometimes you just have a place name. Sometimes you have plural names. And so, it's not a strict genealogy like we've looked at uh, previously in Genesis. But what it does tell us is what happened. What happens after the flood? What happens after that horrible scene with Noah and Ham and the drunkenness and the nakedness that we looked at last week? What happens after that? Where do do things go from there? And so, we have this this, had this full description of the spreading out of man, and there are a number of things that can be pointed out about that, especially the enemies of Israel that come through the line of Ham. But we're not going to focus in there because chapter 10 just tells us what happened. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, tells us why what happened in chapter 10 actually happened. And so we are going to look at actually the the what prompted this spreading out. Because if you just read chapter 10, you become confused very quickly because these are all brothers and then their descendants are speaking different languages. How did that happen? And they're going to different nations. Are they just willingly obeying God's command to fill the earth and subdue it? Well, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, answer those kinds of questions. And that's where we're going to focus, because in chapter 11, Noah's descendants band together to establish a kingdom. That's what they're doing here, their own kingdom. But what we'll see is that God will not have it. God's purposes must succeed. And so what we see as we look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, is that the kingdoms of man will not prevail over the kingdom of God. The kingdoms of man will not prevail over the kingdom of God. So let's just look at it, first of all, by saying that man attempts to build a kingdom. Man attempts to build a kingdom. Verse 1 tells us this this growing mass of humanity... Uh, in verse 2, migrates to the east, to the plain of Shinar, and there, maybe around campfires, maybe over coffee, maybe in the elders' meetings, I don't know how it comes up, but they decide, let's just stay here. It says at the end of verse 2, after saying they migrated to Shinar, it says they settled there. Now, God had commanded that they fill the earth that they spread out, that they scatter, but instead they settled, they stayed together, and they decide to really establish themselves, provide for themselves, secure themselves. And what better way to do that than to build? So look at verses 3 and 4. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly.'" And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You can almost picture some of the elders standing up and championing this cause among the people, like a rally. Come on, let's make some bricks. Let's do something. Let's build something. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's keep ourselves together. After all, unity sounds like a wonderful thing, doesn't it? Let's stay together. What this is essentially saying, what they are essentially saying is they want to be their own people in their own place under their own rule. You remember what it means to be God's kingdom, to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, and yet here they are wanting to be their own people in their own place under their own rule. They want to build their own kingdom, and how do they do it? Well, as you just look at what they say, they use the best of their technological ingenuity. That's the first thing they do. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. In the plain of Shinar, there were not enough stones to build anything of substance. And so they create these bricks. They burn them. I mean, the thing is, is that this kind of creativity in some ways is a reflection of the image of God in these people. To take something and make something of it. This kind of industry, it's not bad in and of itself. The problem is, is they don't say, let's make bricks and glorify God. They want to make bricks so they can build their own kingdom. They want to use their technological savvy for their own good, not to accomplish God's purposes, to set up their own kingdom. And they build a city for themselves. Well, at least they start. Come, let us build ourselves a city. That, those come, let us, come, let us, in Hebrew what that means is that's an expression of the deepest desire of their hearts. Come, let us. Okay? So it's that kind of thing. It's not just a suggestion. It is the expression of their desires To accomplish something so come let us make bricks come let us build ourselves a city let us make a name for ourselves so they want to build a city a place for themselves a life for themselves and here they'll arrange themselves and they'll have their own way of life and their own laws and their own ceremonies and their own society they'll have their little plot of land and there they will be secure They'll also make their own way to God. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They'll make their own way. They will connect heaven and earth. So what was this tower like? Well, don't think Jenga, all right? Don't think like this, you know, just really tall square thing. Don't think like, Eiffel Tower or Skyscraper or Clock Tower. When we think tower, we primarily think of height, and this would have been tall, but it starts out very wide. It's, it's, it's what, would be, what would come to be known as a ziggurat, which is a, a pyramid-type shaped tower that has stairs going up it to the top. At later times, uh, pagan societies would actually build a room at the top with a bed and a table. The idea is that this ziggurat was a way that the gods could come down and and be worshipped and come down and be blessed. It was man's way of making a way for relationship with any divinity. And so here are these people made in the image of God, and they have built this tower... As a convenient way for God Himself to come down and receive worship. Don't worry, Lord, we've got you. We've got you covered. You're welcome. We will build a great building for you, God. Isn't it interesting that just about every time somebody, uh, apart from God's instructions, every time somebody says, you know what, this is what we will do for you, God. God just says, no. He does it here. He does it when... David says he wants to build a temple. No. When the disciples try to show off the temple, right? Jesus says this is all coming down. We've got it covered. We've got this whole relationship between God and man covered. Friends, that is how many people in our society think. They think they have built their own way to be right with God. They've got it figured out. They give a nod to the religious. They love to sing God bless the USA on Veterans Day and July 4th and Memorial Day. They love it when politicians say God bless America. So very often, Such things are a nod to the religious, a seeking to tie religiosity with patriotism when the two do not necessarily go hand in hand. I'll just take the necessarily out. The two do not go hand in hand. It is good to be thankful for our nation. It is good to be thankful for our veterans. We should thank you if you served. But no amount of nodding to religious life will make us right with God. No amount of religious language, no amount of just loving that the Ten Commandments are up, no amount of Just a tip of the cap to the God and Creator and King of the universe. Nothing of the sort will do. Nothing of the sort will do. Man cannot make his way to God in any way, shape, or form. But these folks have decided they'll provide a way to God. And in all of this, they exalt themselves. Look at verse 4 again. Be, um, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I mean, everything comes to a head here, doesn't it? Self exaltation. Let's make a reputation for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's prove that we can do this on our own, that our way of living will work just fine. I mean, that whole obedience and faith thing, that was fine for Noah's generation, but we are advanced now. We make our own bricks around here. We're finding out that as we advance, we need God less and less. And we're okay. We're actually something to behold here. Look at us. It's nothing but pride, brothers and sisters. Now, you may wonder how that how it is that they're actually abandoning God's kingship here. Let's not just think they're innocently trying to build a city and a tower because they try to make a name for themselves and then, and then they say, Lest we be dispersed to the face of all the earth. Basically, throwing God's very command back in his face. Let's do this because we don't really need to do that. That sounds too risky. It's better if we just stay together. I mean, God had specifically commanded them to multiply and fill the earth, and they specifically are saying they don't have to. This is that moment as a parent when you see defiance outright, isn't it? When you say, go and clean your room, and your son, your daughter looks at you and says, I will not clean my room. I will sit here so I don't have to clean my room. That's precisely what's happening. They want their kingdom. They don't need God. They're good on their own. We'll see you at Christmas, God. We'll see you at Easter, maybe. We've got this nice tower for you to come down anytime you want. That's fine. But we're good. Here's the thing is that man building his own kingdom isn't something that is limited to Genesis chapter 11. It's not limited to this point in ancient history. Man has done this kind of thing throughout history. In fact, one way to just view world history is as a series of rise and falls of man's kingdoms. They're established, they flourish to some degree, and then they're taken over. This is what... In its best sense, democracy is meant to be, that no one kingdom is established. But this isn't just a societal reality. I mean, we sit here and we feel pretty far removed from that, don't we? I mean, you're not going home saying, let's build a tower to the heavens or anything like that. Let's build a kingdom But it's not actually just a societal reality. We as individual human beings seek to build and protect our own kingdoms. To live under our own authority. In fact, this is the very essence of sin. When I sin and you sin, it's because we will not submit to the authority and the word of God, our king. We want to be our own authority. The kings of our own kingdom. So let's just think about that. Think about a number of cases. Think about those who sin by way of adultery or by way of uh, pornography. What they are saying is, I will not live under God's kingship in marriage and sexuality. I will make my own way. God's holding out on me by wanting me to stay faithful to this person. Think about theft. I'm not content with what the king has given me in his kingdom. So I will go and I will take what I feel I need or I deserve. Think about worry or anxiety. Rather than trust God, who is king over all of our uncertainties, we become fearful because of our lack of control in any situation. Think about the refusal to forgive and reconcile. It is us saying, God will not be king over my relationships. I will forgive and reconcile when and if I feel like it's okay. Think about sinful anger. Sinful anger is essentially us saying, You have violated the terms and agreements of living in my kingdom. You have not done as I expected you to do. You have not paid me the homage that I expect to be paid. You have transgressed my standards and expectations. Therefore, you will feel my wrath. Either in explosive anger with intense heat, or in manipulative, silent anger that is freezing cold. All because what? You violated my kingdom. This is not just about people building a tower. This is about us building our own kingdoms as well. You see, whether corporately or individually, sinful people attempt to build their own kingdom. But that's not where the story stops. The story goes on to reveal that God's kingdom will prevail. God's kingdom will prevail. Look at it. God, starting in verse 5, God responds to this kingdom building by man, and He makes it clear that man's kingdoms will not prevail, that He is the one true king. Now, Now what do we see in God's response? Well, the first thing we see in God's response is that God's greatness eclipses mankind. God's greatness eclipses mankind. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Just think about what that's saying. The Lord came down. There is incredible irony here. The people have built what was in their own estimation a great place and a great tower that reaches the heavens. And God has to come down just so it would be in view. It's like in Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, God says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. And what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? Where is this grandiose thing that you have built down there? I can't quite see it from here. The Lord came down. He had to if he was going to see it. That's how great God is. Now he knows everything. You see, this is a use of language here. They think they're building up so God doesn't have to worry and the Lord has to come down. One commentator said, The necessary descent of God shows the escapade for what it was. A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. This is why we read in Psalm 2 Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Isaiah 40 says, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is not a statement of God's uncaring attitude toward people. Isaiah 40 draws this sharp contrast between the greatness of God and the smallness of man. That it goes on to say in verse 21 or 22, that he who... He it is he who sits encircled above the earth and we're just like grasshoppers God's greatness eclipses mankind here the lord has to come down and the lord comes down to see and the lord came down to see the city and the tower. Beyond the irony here, this seeing is a word of evaluation. Remember what we've seen so so far in Genesis 1? God sees his creation and says that it's good. In Genesis 6, God sees the wicked intention of all the hearts of man. He calls it evil, and he sends a flood. And here again, God sees the kingdom building of man. Man may believe that he has made quite a name for himself, but God doesn't see it that way. Now we'll see how God responds, but this reminds us and it, it reminds us that God is the judge and He has the final say on mankind. The greatness of His estimations eclipse mankind. And then the, the, that verse ends, "...which the children of man had built." It's not the descendants of Noah. It's not the people. It's not the great mass of humanity. It's the children of man. These people are nothing but frail, mortal, perishable men, made of dust, returning to dust, dependent for every breath on the God that they are defying. They are children of men. You see, man's meager attempts to build his own kingdoms, no matter how great they seem or how much they seem to shine, are all standing in the shadow of the greatness of God. His greatness eclipses everything. You think about every advance that we have made as humanity, every development, every medical development, every technological development, every, archi- every uh, architectural development, every way, the fact that you can sit in here and be warm because something is producing heat. I don't know how any of those things work. I just know that when I push a button, the heat comes on and I feel better after a while. But all of these advances are nothing in comparison to God. very princes of the earth get set up and they expand their empire and they, they, they procure land and they loot from other people and they steal and they take slaves and they do all of this and God blows and they're gone. The greatness of God eclipses mankind. But also the, God's mercy Restrains mankind. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said, "'Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech.' In response to the great desire, the come let us of the rebels is the come let us of God to go and do something about it. Now these words in verse 6 about having one language and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible with them. This is not God shivering in his boots. This is not God afraid that there's about to be a hostile takeover of the universe. That is not what's going on here. What he's saying is that they're not just united in their rebellion, they're united in their language which strengthens their rebellion. So Ronald Youngblood says, "...if the whole human race remained united in the proud attempt to take its destiny into its own hands, and by man-centered efforts to seize the reins of history, there would be no limit to its unrestrained rebellion against God." So God confuses their language. He limits their capacity to band together against Him and His purposes. And it is actually for their good that He does that. Because unrestrained rebellion would destroy humanity. It would be so destructive. Think about those times in history or times just in recent history when rebellion has gone unstrained, unrestrained. And the destruction that it causes. And so, yes, God confusing their language is an incredible demonstration of His power, but it is also a demonstration of His mercy toward them. He draws a line, This far you have rebelled, and you will rebel no farther. Now, if you've ever helped someone who's struggling with major sin, you know what this is like, don't you? Isn't it merciful to go to that friend and say, no, 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 we have to draw the line. You can't even go there because you have, you have so abused that opportunity for sin. It's actually a merciful thing to have restraints to keep from sin. It's merciful for parents to have restraints on children to keep them from opportunities to sin. And so God demonstrates His power in confusing their language, and He shows His mercy by restraining their rebellion. We also see that God's purposes overrule mankind. Verses 8 and 9, "...so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city." Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Did you notice that it repeats that twice? Isn't that interesting? The Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Try as you may, O kingdom of man, you will not prevail over the kingdom of God. In the end, the last word is with Him. He dispersed them. They would not in obedience disperse themselves, so He in pursuing His kingdom purposes disperses them. Because His purposes will be fulfilled. At the end of Job, Job comes to the realization, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's purpose is to have His people filling the place He intends, living under His rule. So He scatters this group and moves his purpose forward, which is what we see in the next act, which comes in the next, uh, the next verses, which will be our last uh, study in this beginning of Genesis. God calls one man, Abram, and Abram will not make a name for himself. God will give him a great name. And Abram will go to one land, and God will bless him there so that that blessing through him will spread to the ends of the earth. That in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, chapter 12, verse 3. You see, while the scene at the Tower of Babel is an expression of judgment against the pride of man, in the end, God scatters humanity to the ends of the earth, so that he may in the end bring blessings to the end of the earth. That's his purpose. That in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's interesting, just in my own Bible reading, I just uh, was in the, the first third of Isaiah, and in Isaiah 19, at the end of it, there's this picture. I mean, two of the main foes of Israel in their history are Assyria and Babylon, right? But uh, there we have Assyria and Egypt, at the, and Egypt would be familiar to these folks, right? But. Egypt and Assyria, it says at the end of chapter 19, that Israel is just a third of the blessed part of the world. The others are Egypt and Assyria. He calls Egypt my people. He calls Assyria my people. I mean, this, this picture of God's blessing going to the ends of the world is there in the prophecy, and it is finally fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that the blessing will go to the ends of the earth, you see he is Jesus is God in the flesh and yet he does not make much of himself. He does not make a name for himself. He does not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't come to be served but to serve. He was the king of kings and yet he didn't come to conquer the world in wrath he came to be conquered by the father's wrath. On the cross for our sin and in His resurrection to conquer sin and death and hell for us. So that all who believe in Him would be blessed with the forgiveness of sin. Blessed by being made right with God. Blessed with the hope of eternal life. Blessed to be part of His kingdom. So that Colossians says, He has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Dear friend, do you know that blessing? Do you know what it is to be right with God? Do you know what it is to be forgiven of sin? Do you know what it is to know that Jesus Christ has stood in your place and died in your place and lived in your place and been raised for you? Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Follow Him. You will be blessed with this blessing if you do. But where does that leave us with the Tower of Babel? Where does it leave us with this idea that the, the, the kingdoms of man will not prevail over the kingdom of God? I think it leaves us with a warning and it leaves us with hope. It leaves us with the warning don't build your kingdom. It is a futile effort. We need this reminder today, not because we are clamoring for political power, but because we want our own personal kingdoms in our homes, on our jobs, in our lives. We want control. We want authority. We want things to go precisely according to our royal decrees. We also need this reminder in our own congregation. Because we are concerned for the work of the gospel here, but dear friends, we cannot limit our concern for the advance of the gospel to this one church. We can become so myopic that we become territorial about gospel work. That somehow there's actually an us versus them in the evangelical church. We're talking about people who preach the true gospel, who preach Jesus Christ as Lord, as God, came, died, rose again, ascended, coming again. We're talking about those who actually preach the gospel, okay? We're not talking about churches that have given away the gospel. The battle there is for the gospel not, not and for the souls of the people who are sitting under a false gospel, But too often when we think about this, we talk as if we're talking about market share. That's where this kind of thinking can take us. When we become so myopic that our only prayers are ever for this church, or or our missionaries, or our, or us, or us, or us, or us. Our heart's concern should be big and broad. You should be praying for the success of Life Point Church, their faithfulness to the gospel. You should pray for Jim Gregory there as he preaches week in and week out. You should pray for Brian McCrory at Heather Hills, the faithfulness of the ministry there. You should pray for Brock uh, Graham and the ministry at Harvest, uh, Chir- Harvest Bible Church South. Everywhere you hear and know of a faithful, gospel-preaching, disciple-making church, you ought to pray that God will bless that place. A kingdom mindset is never, us four, no more, close the door. It means we are arm-in-arm arm with these brothers and sisters at different congregations. We are a network of families in the gospel seeking to expand the kingdom together. We have to be reminded of that. The Tower of Babel warns us that such prideful kingdom building makes us Enemies of God. James chapter 4. God is opposed to the proud. But this story also gives us hope. In our individual lives, where we are so prone to build and protect our own kingdom, if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who's working to sanctify us, to make us fit for His kingdom, the work He's begun in us, will succeed my pitiful little kingdoms won't stand in the end god's kingdom will and that's what's best for me he does it by the power of the spirit one day at a time by sanctification and in the end he will glorify us but even beyond just individual lives, our individual kingdoms being overthrown and swallowed up in the kingdom of God. Think about the original audience. Think about Moses' hears. Think about these children of Israel who are about to go into the promised land or wandering in the desert or whenever these things were first relayed. Think about that crew. Think about how much hope that instills in them and in us. God's kingdom will prevail over Egypt, who had them in slavery. God's kingdom will prevail over Assyria, who will conquer and decimate most of the nation. God's kingdom will prevail over Babylon, who will burn the temple and break down the wall of Jerusalem and loot everything and take the Jews into captivity. God's kingdom will prevail over every man-made kingdom. Every grab for power, every presumption of greatness, every expression of autonomy, God's kingdom will prevail. Every other kingdom will be swallowed up by the kingdom of God so that in the end there is no other kingdom left but His. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's good news. Dear Christian, trust the King. Trust the King in a world disordered by sin, in your life disordered by suffering. Trust the King. Don't build your own kingdom. Seek first His kingdom. And his righteousness, because the kingdoms of man will not prevail over the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pause for just a moment and then I'll pray and dismiss us. Our Father, we bow before You, thankful that You have spoken to us in Your Word, thankful that for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know we have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We deserve nothing but to be cast out of Your kingdom to out of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yet you bring us in through Jesus Christ. I pray for those here who do not know the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray that by your grace, they would see that in the end nothing will stand against you. Our explanations, our own attempts to make our own way to you, all of them fall apart. That the only way, the only truth, the only life is in Jesus Christ. Make that truth shine to them today, Lord. Make it beautiful in their eyes. Save them, dear Lord. Bring them into your kingdom. We pray as believers in Jesus and as a congregation That you would give us grace to not build our own kingdom. That our prayer truly would be Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That we would seek first your kingdom, for it is the only one which will endure. We pray, Father, that as individuals and as a congregation, we will live in such a way that the kingship of Jesus in our lives is clear, that His authority is what we submit to, that His Word is what we listen to, that His life and death and resurrection is the only thing we hope in. And in our giving to missions and in our work of the gospel here and in our prayers for other gospel works in this city, help us to truly be those who build your kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of King Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.